Hello and welcome back to Mind the Gap. We're going into our third year of Mind the Gap, making education work across the globe with me, Tom Sherrington, and Emma Turner. Hello, Emma. Hello, Tom. So nice to see you. Looking well. Yeah, and you too. Happy holidays. And Happy we're about holidays. to gear up for the school term. And for that very reason, we have got the mighty returning Sam Strickland. Hello, Sam. Hi there. Thanks for having me again. Really nice to see you both. Yeah, we, we're excited to talk to you because you've uh, written this brilliant book about behaviour, which I'll flash up on the screen for the YouTube uh, viewers, The Behaviour Manual. And because it's gearing up to the start of the term, we thought it was a good time to talk to you about it and uh, get some ideas. Because it's clearly a time when people are thinking about <clears throat> settling in, uh, setting the expectations and everything. But I'm, I'm, we've got so many questions to ask you about it. I mean, I, I could discuss every single one of the strategies in it. Uh, but I wanted to ask you broadly more sort of as a head teacher with a lot of interests and a lot of uh, things to think about. Why did you feel it was so important to sit down and take the time to write a behaviour book? Yeah, I mean, this, when I look back actually with hindsight, I think this is the book I probably should have written first out of the three that I have written. Um, it's the one that I'm the most passionate about. Uh, I, I, and in terms of a school improvement priority, I think it, it's the big one. It, it's the hill to die on or the hill to, to kind of you know win your, your greatest triumphs on. If you can get behaviour right, I think everything else can, within reason, click into place. Uh, and I think about my own experience at, at Dustin, picking up a school that behaviourally was in trouble, that was the big win to get behaviour turned 180 degrees, kind of flipped on its heads before you can then talk with, with confidence with staff on board with you about curriculum, teaching, pedagogy and all those other wonderful things that allow the magic to happen across your school. Behaviour was, was the big one from for my own perspective. So I also think it's something that does afflict the profession as a whole. You see so many tweets out there about behaviour being a problem for schools. Um, through the behaviour hub work that, that I do, and it's a small pinprick within the context of profession as a whole, but the number of senior leaders and, and middle leaders that, that talk to me directly about behaviour being a concern, being a worry, and asking for advice. So it was a book that I probably should have written first. I've always wanted to write uh, in many regards and finally kind of pulled my thumb out and got on with it. Well, that's good. I mean, it's excellent. And, and the, the style of it is... Um... It's like talking my language, basically short, punchy. And, and essentially, for those of you who haven't seen it yet, every single idea is just one double page of that. You know, that's it. And it's and there's hundreds of them. So, you know, just flicking through through the titles you've got, I'm just looking here, centralised or decentralised behaviour systems, on-call systems, isolation rooms. It's all like really nitty-gritty. And then later on, you've got things like tracking behaviour data, um the behavior charter um and so on and so on health and safety um consequential correction I mean, there's so many things starting lessons big questions command the room it's like it's really comprehensive so you've really gone into it haven't you so what what was your kind of like thought process around what to put in it and how to structure it Try to think about three kind of key layers within the context of a school. So try to think about it from a, a senior leadership perspective, I guess from my own bias, first and foremost, as a head or as, as a senior leader. Then to think about the role of middle leaders, which is a deliberately shorter section within the book, because I think they need to read both 
the, the, the whole school section, the mothership bit, but also the bit to do with classroom teachers. And then the final section, it is the classroom teacher. Um, and, and deliberately wanted a, a big section there because they're the people ultimately who are bossing their classrooms or the architects of their classroom culture who have to, to manage behaviour. Um, but kind of the, the thinking behind it was to have, as you rightly say, Tom, short, sharp, precise strategies that people can use. We are uh, a time poor profession. Um, and I don't think people have got with the, the best will in the world, endless oceans of time to read lengthy uh, books with verbose language that are, that's flowery that doesn't really give you a lot in terms of strategies and approaches and and, and and books that can often just take you off at different tangents and don't really mean a lot now I don't mean that as a criticism of every single educational book that's out there there's some cracking books that are out there but I just wanted something that was really sharp really precise really practical that people could pick up and run with and in many regards it's very much how I'd like to think I run my school that things are short sharp precise and easy to understand and easy to get on board with. You see, I'm really interested in this book, Sam. I think it's brilliant for a start. So congratulations. It's Thank like you. success and it's, it's really popular. But I think just for context as well, you're talking about your school. But people who don't know Dustin, who don't know your school, it's an all through school. So you've got age four to, up to age 18. And am I right in saying there's two, around, approximately 2,000 pupils in it? So Yeah, yeah that's right. That's pretty much in one school, the size of some mats. So, and I, because when I come to Dustin on occasion, it was just to kind of say that the book, it's real. <laughs> As in, you've managed to kind of implement this across all of the age range, right from forward, right the way through to 18, um, which is kind of no mean feat. So it was kind of congratulations on that front as well. But Thank you. I wanted you to kind of talk us through how, as a different sort of colleague in a different phase how you might access this book so what how would you envisage a primary teacher using it a secondary head of department using it, a senior yeah. how does it work yeah I mean from the point of view of different colleagues throughout the profession it's a dip in dip out guide you don't have to read it cover to cover you can read it cover to cover if you want to um, there's a key which deliberately signifies which of the strategies are applicable to primary and obviously, which are applicable to both primary and secondary, all that all through approach. I'd like to think that if you're a primary leader, that you would certainly look at the mothership section. I think there's a lot in there that you can take away at a primary level. Some of it that you might want to leave because of the way in which you know, the primary works in relation to secondary, because there are differences as much as there are generic similarities. Um, I do think there's much, again, that can be learned from primary and vice versa, that primary can learn from secondary. Again, within reason, that's my kind of health warning in there. As a middle leader, uh, and I think back to you know, my time as a head of history, um, I, would, I would argue a middle leader wants, would want to read, ideally, the whole book to understand their role in the bigger context of the school as a whole, but also to remember how to support their, you know, their individual teachers within their department. And then if you're a class teacher, um, I think it, I'm going to be biased, of course, aren't I? Read the whole book. But the, I mean, the section on you know, the, the micro level, the role of the teacher, thinking about each of the strategies, you might want to pick one or two for any given half term and trial them to see how they work. Um, try and get, you know, embed them into your practice before you move on to the next thing. I think, again, a danger would be cognitive overload. That you know, As much as children are susceptible to, to it, so are teachers. And if you were to try and swallow all of this and then throw it all out there in one big go, 
unplanned and unstructured, I think you could find that a lot of this would fall flat on its face and it wouldn't work. And that, again, if I think... Sorry, sorry, Emma. I was just going to interrupt you and say, it sits really neatly with the way that the ECF works because with the weekly meetings with the mentor, when you're looking at a particular strategy, and I know block one for most of the ECF for autumn term is behaviour and culture. Picking out one or two of those sits beautifully with the ECF model, with the instructional coaching model. So it's it's an absolute gift for early career teachers and mentors. Sorry, carry on. (laughs) No, and, and again, that's that's deliberately why I've written the book in the way that I have. I wanted it to be applicable to anybody at any level within this within the profession. But 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 my health warning is don't try and just do all this in one big go. And don't think, you know, if you're taking if you're viewing the book through the lens of what I've done at Dustin, whether you think that's good, bad, or indifferent, if you know of the school, um, don't don't be misguided to think, well, we did all of this in one big foul swoop and bang, the world was great. It, it was incremental and very much a slowly, slowly catch a monkey type approach that we do one thing, wait, see, do the next thing, wait, see, check I'm not reported on the front page of the Daily Mail, do the next thing, and so on <laughs> and so forth. <laughs> one, of, one of the things I, I think is interesting and and to me it's like it's like any tool it's all how it's used and and you've got this tool is fantastic so for the for me one of the great interests in behavior is the the tension between teacher uh, autonomy and responsibility and teachers being effective behavior managers with an assertive presence and uh, an instinct and intuition around when to intervene how strict to be being warm and friendly all of that and the fact that that is supported by a system um, which also has to be effective. And there are scenarios where the teacher might be struggling because they don't get back up from the system and the system is weak. And others where the system would work perfectly, but the teacher doesn't use it well because they're struggling with their own personal effectiveness. And, and those things to me are really interesting. So I was just going to ask you, so, you know, how do you view the situation where you think it's really the teacher's skills that are the are the kind of the the, the territory for working, and not the, the system works for most people, but this that teacher and that teacher are still struggling because they're not making the right call. So how do you how do you support a teacher with that when it's it is kind of down to them more than it than the system? I mean, We've had staff that have been in that position throughout the, the five and a half years I've been. It doesn't be really arrogant of me to say that that we haven't. Um, we've offered just high levels of support. That I mean, first and foremost, when I see if a teacher struggling, I actually take it really personally. Not in terms of I'm affronted by it and I'm going to have a go at the teacher, but I do reflect and think: Has some of the training that we've put into place not landed properly? Have we not explained explicitly enough how we want things to work within the school? Um, we've had open and honest conversations with staff. And I think that that does have to happen at times as well. Sometimes they can be challenging conversations, but I'd rather that we went down the route of supportive conversations of how we can help people. And that doesn't mean mean necessarily my bailing in with my size 11s to save the world or make things worse for the member of staff in question. It's how can we credibly give people proper support um, that's that's non-threatening, kind of low stakes, 
And that, again, is thinking about the training programs in place, the coaching, the mentoring. We've completely changed performance management within the context of the school um, so that it is geared around incremental gains towards your your pedagogical pedagogical practice within your classroom setting. I'm not on form today. I'm still trying to get back into the frame of everything. Um, Can I let me let me let me bring it into the into the book so they're being really specific. Yeah. There's a nice run which I've earmarked here, which I think is in this territory. So it, it's um, strategies which are called uh, front load your expectations, which mm. is the first. The next one is consequence or correction, and the one after that is how many warnings. And this to me is all this territory uh, where there's a lot of wriggle room for an individual teacher. So your expectations so some even though there might be school expectations yeah. and stated expectations and down a corridor some a sense of consistency it's still an individual teacher who needs to say hey guys that's not meeting the expectation and there's a there's a leeway there then that's it's really nicely expressed and consequence of correction so are you saying to the student right consequence for you or come on guys back on track please and that distinction between just always nudging them back or give issuing the detention again a dis, uh, that's a decision isn't it and the last one how many warnings that's such a nice it's kind of like well you know what's the right answer to that you know when do you start saying sorry i've warned you and now i'm doing that or do you warn them again so you can see even within those three things yeah. each teacher's got quite a lot of scope for having to be the decision maker haven't they so how do, how do you mediate that how do you get teachers to understand their Ter- that territory and get to make those right decisions a lot of it um again comes back down to training and repetition of training um and I th- modeling as well I- I- and we talk about this with with children but you've also got to do it with the adults as well with that work within your school setting but actually modeling what those expectations look like and every kind of public um opportunity that you have i mean we have lineups and assemblies as a school we'll utilize those as opportunities to train both pupils and staff together um but equally when you've got those one-to-one situations where a member of staff will come and ask for advice and guidance it, it's almost that process of trial and error with the member of staff have you tried this have you considered this as much as your systems may be centralized and we've got a an unapologetically very centralised system as a school, and I've worked in schools that don't have um, really, you know, hard and centralised systems. Um, there's still that bandwidth with it for a member of staff to have that professional freedom to make decisions for themselves. And you know, our view as a school is it's one warning and, and kind of that's it. But what does that warning actually look like? Again, can be absolutely open to interpretation from one teacher to the next. And there may be members of staff that find that speaking, you know, saying to a pupil two or three times before they actually give the official thing works for them. Now, I I would have a heart attack over that, but it might actually work for teacher X. And I think it's it's recognising that as well. And the flip side of that as well is those teachers who burn out very early doors because they lean on the system enough. They end up investing so much of their own personality. You know, I can control this class just through my wonderful, sparkling wit and wisdom and personality. And they end up absolutely burning out because they haven't lent on the system. So do you ever find that? Not in this current school. But in previous schools, yes. So, yeah, in answer to your question, yes, I have. I have found staff that that kind of burn out. You have that natural honeymoon period at the start of most academic years where the first sort of three to four weeks, things are seem really, really good. 
and then you get ambushed. Uh, and I've had it myself as a class teacher, you know, one particular class, I thought, ah, oh, cracked them. Yeah, I've cracked them. They love me. And then four weeks down the line, they clearly don't love me. <laughs> they, they've sussed me out. I've not used the school systems and they've got me bent over a barrel. And then it's really hard, isn't it, to come back from that because you've not set your stall out properly from the start, you can actually cause yourself a, a, a bigger problem further down the line. So my advice would always be to members of, of staff in any school, use the systems that are there. <laughs> use the procedures that are in place. Which leads me neatly into something I wanted to ask you. Is obviously, this is going to go out early on in the year and there's going to be thousands of colleagues starting either a new leadership role or starting as a, as a class teacher for the very first time. So what would be your advice for the things you need to focus on in terms of behaviour and culture if you're starting a new role, if this is completely new, where do you go? I mean, as a, as a brand new teacher, to either to the professional or to a school, you've got to spend almost, I would argue, as much time considering this, the, the systems, the processes, the routines that you want for your classroom as much as you do the, the curriculum in its kind of traditional academic sense and your subject knowledge, because otherwise you are going in there relying on the force of your personality, coupled with, you know, maybe exceptional subject knowledge, potentially not if you're a, a brand new um, member of staff to the profession, because that comes over time, unless you're naturally gifted. Um, but, but I would argue you need to spend time thinking about the, the dynamic of the room, how the room's laid out, how the furniture is laid out. And I know there's loads of debates and arguments about furniture, which consume <laughs> our profession. But ultimately, have you sat in every seat within the room? Can the pupils see you, see the boards um, when you're giving an explanation? And if they can't, if their vantage points are such that they're facing backwards when you're at the front and you're giving an explanation and you're modelling something to them, you instantly have a problem because you have kids craning their necks or, or actually just not even bother looking at you. So there's that side. Have you thought about the displays in the room? Have you got cognitive overload within the room because it's like a, a, a rainbow of colour and posters and pictures and you know, I know you talk, you, you talk about this, Emma, but having posters around the screen itself that you might be working from, get rid of them. Um, have you thought about how the pupils come into the room, how they leave the room, um, how you hand out resources, how you collect resources in, how you get pupils to answer questions? Is it hands up? Is it cold calling? Is it surnames? Is it literally that you go, you know, one, two, three, four, five across the room? You know, it's that level of detail, I would argue, that you need to have given thought to. And it, but as a brand new member of staff into the profession, it will take you time to get that those those routines and systems habitual for you because you're constantly thinking for yourself, well, oh, okay, we're five minutes in, it's minute six now, should we should be moving to this and it needs to work in this way. And it can feel a bit clunky for a, a fairly novice teacher. If this, if this, especially if this doesn't come naturally to you. And I, I guess my messaging here is it's hard work. And it was the, the first piece of advice I was given as an NQT by the second in history when I joined the history department I joined. And he said that the, the secret to this job is hard work, nothing else. I think there's no true I, I, I think you need to sort of, uh, you know, from my feeling about all this is that you need to feel that it's just not just a big, not a big deal uh, to get students to say, go back outside and come back in a second time. And Guys, you know what? That wasn't that wasn't as good as you could do it. Let's try again, and to sort of embed some level of repetition and explicit rehearsal, rather than 
it becoming that was terrible, nag, 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 rubbish, rubbish. It's sort of, you know what? Let's do that better and and get make it feel natural to the students, not so, so they don't go, oh God, do we have to <laughs> sort of if it's not good enough, we're going to do it again. And and that type of thing, I I didn't ever do that until years into my teaching profession. <laughs> and and I really regretted it. You know, I learned so many things later that I thought, God, I wish I'd done this before. Because you 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 end up in this sort of blind alley of <laughs> kind of attritional language, which is sort of you feel like you're grinding out this thing. And actually you can save a lot of emotional stress by it's been really functionally routine driven. One of the things that comes up, Sam, all the time in these debates is about relationships. And sometimes people think it's like the killer answer. Hey, it's all that all that Rosenshine stuff. Yeah, <laughs> we all know teaching's just all about relationships. <laughs> and you go, like, like, like the person's sort of expecting kind of a round of applause, you know. But the, the truth is that relationships are important, but you can't just walk into a class and go, hey, guys, let's have some good relationships. It, it's not it's not a technique, is it? So what's your view of this thing of relationships and the way it's used as a, as a I don't know, like a debating point? I mean, they are hugely important. I, I know many people have cited that as well, that relationships are key. They're really important to, to classroom management. And and actually, the whole profession is based on relationships, ultimately, in terms of it's a, it's a people-based job. But that takes time. Yeah, you're not automatically going to um, b- develop and build an amazing relationship with every single pupil from, from the off. And, and again, I, I suppose it goes back to, to what I said previously about it being hard work. Teaching is hard work. However, we strip it uh, and it takes time and it takes energy to build relationships with, with pupils, with children and trust. Um, and for many children or pupils, it comes far quicker than, than others. There'll be some that are really hard to reach because there's a whole multitude of reasons as to why they perhaps don't want to give their trust to you straight away. Um, but I I would argue again that those relationships don't come without a certain level of consistency, conformity, routine, certainty uh, within what you're doing as a classroom teacher, because otherwise the classroom becomes a zoo. If, if pupils know that they can come in in a rabble, do what they want, throw their bags around, talk to you as they like, you know, without being polite. Um, answer questions if they're going to whatever way that they they want to and that there's no real sense of order relationships aren't going to flourish in those kind of environments they're going to to wane and fall apart so you need some sense of structure and order first for relationships to to actually happen but but equally I, I do think there's a responsibility on the part of schools here to build that sense of order how do you induct new pupils into your school that there's a big moral responsibility and professional responsibility on the parts of heads and senior leaders and heads a year or heads a house, depending on what structure schools have got, to lay down the ground rules that when you walk into classroom, you know, your classrooms for your lessons, you should expect, especially if it's a really clearly systemized school, to go in in manner X. You should expect teachers to be doing dum 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 with you. Um, and if they're not, then the lessons aren't working the way that they should in this particular school. So I think there's as much a responsibility on the part of the school, the mothership, to actually train pupils before you let them loose into lessons on what those expectations are. So it makes teachers' lives easier, but it also, and maybe this is idealistic, 
but it avoids teachers having to have, especially at the start of the academic year, that one hour front loaded, these are my expectations lesson where there's no learning at all. It's just a teacher lecturing the kids on what they expect. And the kids, you know, within five minutes, you, and I've seen this so many times, just go, oh, God. they do do. Uh, but they're going to go through in a secondary setting 25 of these lessons in a week of you know various differing teachers saying these are my expectations expectations this is what i expect in my classroom for an hour long and i think you you need to weave that into the the actual lesson delivery the lesson content and Mm. and you kind of alluded to it tom try and make it fun uh, you, know, you know, an approach we have as a school is show me your best, which I talk about within the book. And it might sound at face value. Oh, my God, you're getting kids to sit upright, facing forward, arms folded, pens down. How draconian is that? But we play games with it. Who can do it the quickest? Who can do it the fastest? Who can do it the best? Who can show me their best? There's 10 house points available for the person that can sit upright, you know, in the, you know, in the most positive manner to try and make it something that the, the, the kids can actually really relate to. Shaping of answers is another one. So giving full sentences. You know, we play games with with, with the pupils um, when we do this with them. You know, who who can give me their answer? Ten percent louder, ten percent clearer. Yes, I might look like I'm twenty one, but actually I'm nineteen. Can't really hear really well. Come on, give it to me louder. So it's it's trying to play games with it to make it fun, and you can then build your routines in that way as well. You don't always have to be you know cast iron. Bang! It's got to look like this and bah 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 in terms of your approach. Strategy 102, show me your best. <laughs> which, I, which I can say I have seen. I have seen it in action. It's actually a real thing. You're listening to Mind the Gap, presented by John Cat Educational. Over the past six decades, John Cat has supported teachers and school leaders with research-based, easy-to-use professional development books for the entire faculty. Visit us.johncatbookshop.com in the United States or at johncatbookshop.com or elsewhere across the globe to find the latest titles. I wanted to touch on something else because I know it's called the behaviour manual, but you talk an awful lot about culture in there. It's almost like behaviour brackets culture manual. So I just really wanted to probe what your thinking was around what do we mean by a school culture and how does behaviour sit within alongside uh, your approach to developing that culture? I mean, behaviour is part of your school culture it's it's entwined it's it's effectively part of that kind of dna that runs through the school and behavior will define your culture if behavior is really poor school culture is weak you've got a, a culture potentially where staff morale will be low well-being is not where it needs to be learning is poor so i think it's it's all those different kind of facets of school life that kind of come together but are underpinned by behavior behavior will define everything that you do within your school setting that that's my my genuine view and if you've got a positive culture of behavior then you can let rip you know that the kids can learn lots teachers can teach you can ask more of staff because they're not having to think about behavior in the way that perhaps they would do normally if you've centralized that your behavior systems uh, as one example and, and staff aren't having to man detentions after school well idealistically they can go home earlier they're not having to sit in detention halls after school running detentions for you. They can think about their curriculum. They could offer you extracurricular activities. They're more likely to be receptive to those things that you idealistically want them to do. Because ultimately, and I mentioned this earlier, but the profession's a finite 
in terms of time, a finite profession on that front. And if you're asking staff to do behavior and to manage it and to boss it and to run it, what else? You, you can't really ask a lot more because that will take up all their time. So my view is you take that away to allow them to do all the other things that actually make a school culture flourish fully. You say you take them away. Do you mean you as the head? It depends on the phase of the school and the state of the school. Um, I, I would argue, if I take my own journey um, at, at Dustin, very different to my previous headship, the first 18 months, everything ran through me. I was bossing behaviour, for want of a better phrase, you know, leading behaviour, leading behaviour training, leading what it, what it needs to look like, leading the role modelling, leading how it was exemplified in assemblies, in lineups, in everything that we were doing as a school deliberately because I wanted to set the standards. And if I don't know what the standard is, then God knows how anybody else is going to know in terms of what's going on in my head. It's kind of guess what's in my head, isn't it, ultimately? Um, and then over kind of time, left that to middle leaders, senior leaders to kind of you know, lead the charge on, classroom teachers, you know, completely adept at uh, classroom management and, and behaviour management within the context of the school. But the systems are really centralised and, and hopefully will never not be centralised as we kind of move forwards over time. I, I'd, I wouldn't want to take that away. Um, so I, I think a lot is down to kind of this, the state of the school that you, you know, you're assuming as a senior lead, as a head teacher, actually. I think back to my, my previous school, an outstanding flagship school, behaviour was exemplary. I didn't need to lead behaviour in the way that I do at, at, at Dustin when I first joined Dustin. Um, you know, I had to obviously do certain things because this is me and what I think the school should be like as the head. <laughs> but actually, I could spend more, far more time thinking about curriculum and teaching and learning in that school because of where the school was you know, on that trajectory of travel. Mm. I think that's important. I mean, that, that's one of the things where the context you're in is so key. And it's, I think it's so important for people to refrain from imposing their sort of prejudices based on, on specific context onto other people. I mean, I, we don't have to get into this here, but it's the one thing that... Don't go there, Tom, don't go there. <laughs> <laughs> where are you going? <laughs> oh, boom. <dude. laughs> okay. But on, in various interviews, that, well, say if I'm interviewed, or in certain, so even our own podcast, the thing that I get most wound up about, and it really, really can wind me up, is this suggestion that you know you've got somebody running a great school uh, in a very tough situation where without really frontline strong behavior routines the school will be really hard to teach in and not many people would thrive there as a teacher and there's a school doing what they feel they need to do on the ground in the context someone outside of that has the audacity <laughs> to critique what that school is doing and you just think, who the hell are you to do that? Who do you think you are? You know, just just say thank you to all those people for the work they do and trust them. You know, sometimes those people are the same people that go on about trusting teachers. Like, well, listen to yourself. Trust those guys. They wouldn't be doing that stuff if they didn't feel it was important to get the school they've got. And that, to me, you can see I'm winding myself up already. But <laughs> and do you feel that? I mean, like, you sometimes dip into these debates, don't you, that, there is a line, obviously, and do you ever think schools are too strict or over the top or you think, oh, God, I wouldn't have done that? Or do you always think, well, context, you know, what do you think? 
I mean, I've visited a lot of schools, as you can imagine. That there's there's been a few strict approaches where I thought that's on the cusp, but it works for you. So I've not criticised it. I've not thought, you know, silent corridors as an example, one that always gets a, a bandwidth of debate, doesn't it? It works in some schools. I've seen it work fantastically. It wouldn't work in mine because of the geography of my school building and the size of my school. 2,000 kids, you know, sort of transcending from one lesson to the next. Silent corridors probably would not work. And actually, we don't need them. We've got a really clear one-way system. But in other schools, they're fantastic. Fine, do it. But but yeah, I do. I do get frustrated at times when we have people that, that criticise what we do as schools. Um Every school is different. Every school is unique. Every school has its own way of doing things. Um, and there's often very good reason for why schools will do what they do in the way that they do. Um, and again, I think through my own career, I've worked in a school that was solely based on restorative approaches without any real real rules and any real sanctions. That was an outstanding flagship school. You know, it worked really, really well. To other people, that will be like you know, complete marmite for some and, and make them want to vomit, of course. Um, Bobby's actually itching. He's scratching. <laughs> flip side, people look at my school and think, oh, you know, Dustin, really, you know, draconian, Victorian. They've got all these rigid systems. But as you rightly alluded to, staff can teach. Kids can learn. Kids do really well in our school as a result. It works where we are. Would I do that if I was able to move on to another school? Would I do that again in that way? Who knows? It depends on the context of the school. Yeah, if you've ever been, and we had Adam Boxer on before, before you know, the, the, at the end of last term, and he can get pretty wound up by this stuff as well. And, and I think we we all have this, well, we we share this perspective that having personally been fried by a, a, a year nine group or someone, you know, or knowing someone who has, gives you a perspective like that shouldn't happen. You shouldn't have to go to work as a young professional and actually be reduced to tears by teenagers. and there are sometimes sometimes the teenagers are to blame <laughs> you know it's okay to say that and and they can they have to take responsibility for that and i think there's something about that it's so interesting isn't it like you know we, we, we all care don't we we all care we all want children to succeed and yet some people sort of put themselves up on a pedestal of, of righteousness uh judging uh in a way which i just find is is really unhelpful but there is one area this is a, more of a question what about kids who are kind of sometimes people it's to do with neurodiversity, sometimes it's to do with um, social factors. But there are children where behaviorist systems don't work for them yeah. and they are constantly struggling to, to beat to conform and it's effortful and stressful. So, I, I mean, how do you deal with the, student, the children on the margins of the systems? I mean, one of the... I would argue one of the great things about having really clear centralised systems is it allows you to identify the genuine needs really quickly because you, you can very quickly see which pupils are misbehaving, of course, especially when you've got a cast iron set of systems in a school like mine. Um, you can very quickly see which are just social norm style behaviours that you, you actually need to crack, if I'm going to be honest, and you need to do something about as a school on one front because it's misbehaviour for misbehaviour's sake. There needs to be personal responsibility on the part of the child. But it also allows you to identify, you know, depending on the bandwidth of your school, the one, two, maybe three or four percent of your school population who have got real needs, who have had trauma, because there are kids with trauma. It would be really wrong to say that there aren't, or kids that have got SEMH, etc. And 
one of the things that, that, that we did um, was to build our own positive impact centre. So alternate provision within within the town in Northampton is, is, is not great. If I'm going to be professionally, you know, professionally uh, safe here in terms of how I kind of put this, and it's very expensive. There's only one Ofsted registered provider uh, within the town. So we decided uh, to kind of take the bull by the horns and create our own positive impact centre for exactly the pupils that you've, you've referenced, Tom. Um, and there's a number of different layers of support that's available within this particular part of the school. So we've got designated school counsellors. We have two on school site that will work with pupils that have got maybe bereavement issues, um, wider social, emotional issues that, that need um, a regular programme of counselling. Um, and the idea ultimately is that that isn't something that lasts forever because that's unhealthy ultimately. But it, it gives them kind of a... I guess a scaffold to get themselves back into the right mindset to be able to learn again. And if they then need support again in the future, it, it's there if it's necessary. It's all done on a kind of a, an audit and a means test about around what our, our, our children need. There's a mental health and well-being nurse that works within this positive impact centre. And it's something that we've done in response to the pandemic. We saw that as a, um, a wider issue when we came back, so to speak, from COVID. Um, there's a number of um, Hilters that have been retrained in I guess the best way to put it is the old SEAL protective behaviour programme that kind of died a death. But those those programmes are absolute dynamite in terms of what they offer to kids. Um, so to give you a, a couple of examples, there's um, a self-esteem group for a group of pupils. There's a self-harming group as another one. There's an LGBTQ plus group for another group of kids who are trying to come to terms with the fact that perhaps they, they're not straight. And how do they deal with that? And how do they feel that they're perceived by their peers? And then there's outright alternate provision for pupils that are repeat offenders, school refusers, on the verge of permanent exclusion, who've got major issues, major needs. Uh, and again, the idea with all of this is to bring them back into the mainstream curriculum. It's not to you know, stick them in this particular part of the school and say, you know, never more shall you be seen and never more <laughs> shall you darken our corridors, go away, out of sight, out of mind. It's very much geared about how do we get them back into the mainstream uh, you know, with their peers, because ultimately that's where they're going to be the most successful. But they still access maths, English, science lessons. They'll access PE lessons. Yes, they're delivered by a different member of staff within the context of this particular part of the school, this particular centre. Um, but we don't want to fall behind in their core curriculum. And at the moment, that approach takes place in Key Stage 3. We're, we're, we're considering what we do for Upper Key Stage 2 moving forwards and how we kind of broaden this provision. Um, but I think there's a real need. You know, 2,000 kids, yeah. you're going to have pupils that fall into the very kind of categories that you cited. Of course you would, by the law of averages. And you've, you've got to do something for those children. Otherwise, they will become the school refuser that never comes in and falls apart and, and then is lost from education. Yeah, no, Emma, so, I mean, you, you've got... It, no, I was just going to say, it, I, I've, I've seen that positive impact centre and it is phenomenal. Um, but the thing I was going to say is one really interesting part of the behaviour debate is that the behaviour debate very much sits in secondary. Mm. We're not saying we don't have behaviour issues in primary. Oh, my goodness, we do. And I can think of children off the top of my head which have like a bit like your year nines that you talk about, Tom, that... <laughs> that you don't look back with particular fondness of experiences in that particular classroom. Um, however, because you've got an all, all through, what do you think is the shift or the change that happens or that, that needs addressing or 
what happens between key stage two and key stage three, do you think, that might alter the, the number of incidents of beha- poor behaviour or the way you have to deal with behaviour? What's the shift? I think the consistency factor is the big one. You've gone from same teacher all day, every day. You know them inside out. They know you inside out. Your year six teacher probably knows you better than your parent. And that's not meant as a slur on parents, but they probably do because they're spending more time probably than parents do with it, with, with their own children. And, and I, don't mean that a day. A, I don't mean that as a slight <laughs> on parents at all, but, but there is a real level of certainty and a real level of consistency, or there should be in terms of that year six teacher and how they interact with those children. They know the ebb and flow of the, of the day, as should the teacher. But when you go into secondary, you're then going into the domain of 12, 13, 14, maybe 15 different teachers. And if it's, well, even if it is a school with a really clear, systemized approach to behavior, there's a bandwidth, isn't there, from one teacher to the next of what their expectations are, what their values are, what their classroom culture looks like. What I can get away with in your class, Emma, is going to be different to Tom's. It's going to be different to, you know, teacher X, teacher Y, teacher Z. There's going to be little nuances that are going to be different. Equally, there's going to be a difference in terms of the the experience and expertise of the teachers that I'm going to encounter as that year seven pupil. I might have an ECT that's teaching me. I don't, and again, don't mean this badly about ECTs, but then the next teacher might be the head of department. The next teacher might be a UPS3 teacher that's taught for 25 years and can just teach stood on their heads. And that bandwidth, again, of expectation as you go from room to room to room, it leads to such an, kind of a, an accumulator effect of what can happen with behaviour across an entire school. And also it's a bigger cohort. You know, you've gone from potentially a cohort of 60, a two-form entry, to suddenly 400 kids in a, in a year group, 270 kids in a year group. That's kind of you know, fairly normal size, isn't it, for a big secondary school? You're one of many, not one of a few, and not perhaps quite as, as special as you were. And the person that is your constant in the, in the working week is your form tutor in the secondary, but they only probably see you for 15, 20 minutes a day. And if they're trying to build up a rapport and a relationship, and I'm now criticising my own school now, because this is what we do. But in terms of trying I'm to build a sorry rapport... sorry for leading you down that path, Sam. No, I no, but it's true though, isn't it? You know, in terms of trying to build a relationship, that's quite hard. 20 minutes a day, five days a week. It's going to, that's is, going to again, so it's going take time. I, I think, I mean, I, I always have this beef that, well, I, I think it's important not to over-dramatise this thing like it's like a, it's a catastrophe. For most mm. children, it's not. I mean, my experience over all the years I was in schools is that most year sevens fly. <laughs> they love it. It's just awesome. And... And it's, it's a positive experience. They're ready. You know, they come out of primary school full of beans and they love it. It works. I think schools do a really good job of it generally. So it's the kids around the margins who are more likely to find it hard. And it's that thing of picking up the information and knowing about them, being known. And if you've got a primary environment where you're really well known and all your foibles are well known, it's hard for 10, 12, 15 teachers to know you. And so you do have a little bit of, of, of transition for some. But I think that's important not to characterise the whole thing like that. <clears throat> but then that's why the, the relationships thing has got to be, I just think having kind of uh, authority-based things of like, we're going to do some learning. And this is why in your book, I love the way you you nicely move in questioning techniques and all this sort of stuff in amongst it, because it's almost the best way to 
run a room is through the way you do questioning and explaining and getting excited about the material. And teachers who focus on that are also going to be working their skills on behaviour. And so if I was recommending this to new teachers, I'd be saying, do it do it through the material you know don't try to be anything other than a really great teacher of history or whatever in year seven um and that's the way that you'll get a good relationship with those kids that you can't emulate their year six teacher who had them last year you're never going to get close no no i i agree i agree and that's why i decided <laughs> that the um the front-loaded one-hour lesson of expectations isn't the way to go about it it is to get into the learning let the content engage the pupils let your enthusiasm your passion for science history pe whatever it might be be the thing that engages them and then you can build your systems and routines for learning yeah. in through the activities so what are you going to say were you, were you like oh it's going to say i feel like it's a counseling session because my eldest is just about to start <laughs> seven in a couple of weeks <laughs> Yeah. I'm and I'm moving from like the world I know her world her primary world I don't know this world so I feel like I've been counseled through it by you two so I've been, I've been very positive now <laughs> I have to say both my kids loved year seven um it was great you know they they just loved the whole range of teachers and their subjects and um but they also had you know they weren't like they were just ready. I think that's the thing. Like, people talk about this transition. I think it's a, quite a good juncture. They're, they're ready for that range most of the time. And it's really important not to patronise them uh, in year seven. It's important to I'm them. not I'm not ready for uniform expectations, though, Tom. They freaked me out. <laughs> I can't just go to the next and buy a pinafore. <laughs> no. Well, look, I mean, I, I think we know. We, I, honestly, I said it at the beginning. If you look through all the different areas, this book is so dense in terms of the range of issues, but it also has a sort of weird feeling of being like you could just open a page and, and just think about that one area and only that. And that would be a great discussion at a CPD session. And yet taken as a whole, it's got this other whole wraparound leadership thing. So it's very, it's very skillfully done. It's like 116 one-page wonders, isn't it? Basically. <laughs> so I'm going to, you know, we don't only invite people on, on our podcast to big up their books, but it, it's it's really great. And I, and, I, and I really think people should, you know, share it, get it, share it. But the main thing I, I'm, we're going to come to a close now, really, is, is to say, I want to just say a huge thank you to you, Sam, because I feel like there are there are there are people, but you're one of the one of the stronger voices of people who kind of really stick up for the profession at all levels. You know, you big up head teachers, you big up middle leaders and teachers. You, you, you're grounded in the realities of the heart, the sharp end in the way which, to be honest, some people just aren't. <laughs> and I, I just think it's great. So everything you say and do, I just, I'm always sort of feel like you just need to be applauded for it. And, you know, I just want to say a big thank you for that. So thank you. Thank you. That's really kind. Thank you ever so much. Um, and it's all true as well, Tom, because I've visited <laughs> times, and it's not just a load of old chat. It's happening. <laughs> it's real. It's in, well, we're very it's, wide open with our doors. So I know. And if you, if you pudding, are listening, if you are listening and you want to visit Sam's school through the Behaviour Hub thing, I would 100% recommend it because it's absolutely brilliant. And because it's all through, you can see the whole bandit. So if you but we're go. not the fully finished article. I think that's the other thing as well. You know, we know that there's still, as there always is, there's still more we can do to make the school better and better and better. 
So I wouldn't that's be arrogant like, enough to sit here and go, oh, we're, we're brilliant at everything that we do and everything <laughs> turns to gold. <laughs> well, it's quite it's quite a skill to be um, able to sort of be quite deliberate. You know, like you're quite forceful in some of your opinions, but but it's never to the point of sort of a perverse black and whitery. It's you never go that far. He's like, yeah, I'm really strong about this, but of course there's a margin still, and, and I think that's that's quite a hard a hard line to hold. But you do that. But look, thank you so much, Sam, for being on, on our first episode of the new year. It's been a real honour to have you on, on the show. And thank you to everyone listening. Uh, we're looking forward to the year ahead. We've got some great guests coming up. Really excited about the, the future uh, episodes, but also recent episodes. For example, we ended with a brilliant episode with um, Craig Barton and previously Adam Boxer, so definitely worth checking out. And um, we've got Diana Osaki coming up and various other people. So thank you very much for listening to Mind the Gap. Making Education Work Across the Globe with me, Tom Sherrington, and Emma Turner. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Mind the Gap. We hope you enjoyed hearing what's on our minds today. For much more great content, make sure to check out the video version of our show, which includes additional segments and features. Visit edcircuit.com or go to YouTube and subscribe to our channel, Mind the Gap with Tom and Emma. See you next time.